word is true. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. It's all that I need. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 3. We have already heard that Luke wants us to make sure we know that the times during um, John the Baptist and Jesus, the world was in havoc. And first of all, we know that was Herod the king in chapter 1, and he was a wicked man. Chapter 2 is Caesar Augustus, and we know his real name is Octavian, but he thought of himself as sacred and exalted and named himself that. And this week, we, we see such such a, a world that exists of Caesar Tiberius, or Tiberius Caesar. He's the head of the world. And then under him comes Pontius Pilate. And then three, three rulers under Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, and Licinius. And so that's who's ruling the world at this point. And they're all, every chapter one, two, and three, Luke says, I want you to know the world couldn't be any worse. And they, it couldn't be worse for people like the Jews, for followers of Jesus. You know, that was going to be. It was, that's why I think the Jews got so confused about Jesus the Messiah. They needed saving from the Romans. They were so rough, you know, on them. But we know Jesus was going to come to save them from so much more themselves, actually. But anyway, you can't help but wonder in a world like that, and I think here's a good lesson for you and I, is how can there still be people like Elizabeth and Zechariah? How can there still be people like Mary and Joseph? And there's shepherds. And, and how about Simeon and Anna? I mean, they were such wonderful, godly people how can they still stay so strong in in a world like that but they did they were filled with the holy spirit and they they relied totally on the lord and that's a choice that they made and god could see their heart and you know he just uses ordinary people but he does extraordinary things with ordinary people who are willing to do what he says. So tonight, you know, we've got the rulers in place. We've got the high priests in place, Annas and Caiaphas. And I asked you that question, okay, now that all, all of our history and all the governmental stuff is out of the way here. What do we know? What happens? The word of the Lord, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. And where had he been? Well, he had been for years in the desert, getting trained probably, getting, getting himself ready for his mission and then, you know, because a lot of years have passed. In fact, Jesus, where he went from 12 to 30, you know, and, and what, what was he doing? Well, he was home, you know, he was home with his mom and dad, and he was learning the trade of carpentry, and he too was getting ready with wisdom and grace to go to his mission so that's what's happened, and now we move into tonight, and, and John the Baptist hears the word of God, and it's time to go. It's time to go. It's time to start, and he goes um, to the country around the Jordan River, and he preaches this message of the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, baptism wasn't a strange word, but baptism was mainly for the Gentiles. When Gentiles wanted to become a Jew, they needed to be baptized. Oh boy, did they ever. That's the way they kind of figured. But if a Jew wanted to be baptized, that meant they identified, they saw themselves the way they really were, and, and they, they identified with the heathen Gentiles. I mean, and I think it's, it sounds so terrible, but I think that's what the Lord wants. He wants all of his people. He wants all people to see that they need a savior. And so the whole thing about repentance, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, you know, we always kind of think of repentance as, you know, have you ever, have you ever, gone to an altar? Have you ever had an experience of, of when a minister asks for anybody to they welcome to the altar? If you have, if you want to come up for salvation, if you, if you want to recommit your life because you know you've been wayward, or you've just got such a burden that you just need to come to the altar because you know that that's a place where you just feel so close to the Lord and you can just give it to him. And probably 99.9% of the time, you're going to have a wonderful person come by you and put their arm around you and pray with you. It's a wonderful place. And I have yet to go to the altar and not be sobbing. And I know I only had to go once for salvation, but I've been at the altar plenty of times. And yet, I, I, there's such a feeling. And it's usually for some kind of repentance or some kind of burden. And, and you can just lay it there. And so the feelings are deep. And there's nothing wrong with feelings. But John tonight is going to teach us that repentance is so much more than feelings. It's an action word. In other words, it means that, yes, you could feel deeply right now, but when you get up and you start heading out that door, you, you've got to, you're going to be different because you now have repented and you're going to be willing to let him change you. And so this is what John says. We've got to pray. We got to, I'm going to preach and you've got to pray about this. You need the baptism of repentance. This is a whole new, that's why Paul said, old things are gone. Behold, all things become new. And then for the forgiveness of sins, I mean, it's such a forgiveness of sins. I think... What helped me is Sunday, I, I always listen to our son's um, sermons on Sunday afternoon, and not to check on them, but I just like to hear them because they're pretty good. <laughs> and so I was listening to our oldest um, preach Sunday afternoon, and even though I had all my lesson done, I thought, oh, yes, this is, you know, forgiveness is like a freedom. It's like you've been liberated. It's, you've been carrying all this, and you've now been forgiven, and you've been set free. And, and, and Chad was, he used um, a couple references. I mean, he started to, he says, did you ever think, as he was preaching on Exodus and the people of Israel leaving Egypt, and he said, did you ever, and I never had really thought about it, that every one of those million-plus people that left Egypt that night they had never known freedom. I mean, it had been 400 years that they were, they were persecuted in Egypt. So it's been so, you know, so long that there's not a one living that really knew what it was like 
before. So when they stepped away, that was, did you ever think about what that must have felt like? That, you know, there's, there's no one that's going to tell them what to do, where to go. I mean, you think about how hard they were working with the bricks and all that. And now they're free. They're free. And then, then he mentioned, he says, and then what about those people that um, had to leave one country because they really weren't worth it? So let's just move them over to a people that are worth it and, and make them work for the ones who are worth it. And yet think about that, you know, at the end of the Civil War and at the and Abraham Lincoln and that, those people that were taught and they believed that they were lowly and worthless, only the thing that they were good for was to... to work for people that were worth it when all of a sudden they can walk away and they can they can have their own life and they can make a new life for themselves and make their own choices and I never really really thought about it and then and then he used this too and he said did you ever think about how during World War II, and you know, you picture with the, those train cars filled with Jews and and what about at the end of World War II, the people, the Jews that did survive that Holocaust, who did live through it, they probably still had the smell of death and gas in their nostrils yet. But they could walk away knowing that it was over and they were free. It kind of gives you at least a human idea of what freedom, it's just a marvelous word. But John wants us to see that this whole thing of forgiveness, I want to preach to you, John says, the message of the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When was the last time you really considered how much you have been set free? It's those three illustrations, those were wonderful. And I'm not saying that they weren't. But when we've been set free from our sins, from the prison and the bondage of our sins because of Jesus, I mean, we should be dancing on the chairs because that kind of freedom, we've been liberated, we've been bought back, we've been redeemed. We have a future. And this is going to be the message that John says, I'm sticking to this. I'm not wavering. I want you to understand what this Messiah is going to do. And he was also really good about trying to get their attention. I mean, for, for one thing, you know, he's, he's, you know, the other gospels kind of say that, you know, he dressed different, he ate different, you know, he's a little eccentric, as he is, you know, some people would call him weird, you know, but I don't think that John meant to be weird. He just wanted to do whatever it took so that people would come and hear. And, and human nature is, can't you just hear them talking in the towns? Hey, you got anything going tonight? Let's go hear the weirdo. Let's go see him tonight. I mean, I, I know that for a fact because years ago, listen to this. Years ago, I had a lady come up to me in Bible study. 
And she said to me, I want you to know, I used to come to this study, and I know she's been coming for years. She said, oh, I just want you to know that I came to Bible study, and, and I kept coming because I just wanted to see what you were going to wear. That's what, that's what she said. I couldn't believe my ears. But the thing is, she said, um, you know, and, and it, it excites me as some, because I don't care why people come, because I know the power of God, and, and whatever reason they want to come, I know that if they are willing to open their spiritual ears, they'll hear the truth of God's word, and then they'll be coming for all together different reason, I guarantee them. But, you know, I think John was a little like that. He whatever it takes to get people to come and to listen to him preach this message. But he also knew his crowd. And he quoted from Isaiah 40. Now, a Jew, they, they took pride, I think. I dare say that. They took pride in knowing the scriptures, especially the prophets. And when, when John started quoting from Isaiah 40, their ears would perk up. I, I can just about imagine them saying, oh, I know that, I know that. But now they're hearing it in a different context because John is standing right in front of them. So when John uses the words, a voice of one calling in the desert, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that they're starting to click and put pieces together and see that. And then he goes on, and, and it is amazing how Isaiah said these words hundreds of years ago, and he said, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth. You know, I hope in your assignment that you're to read the chapter every day. Um, I hope you read that every day and thought, you know, every day, maybe a little more insight on that. I know for me, it took a while. And what does that mean, prepare the way for the Lord? Make straight the path. Every valley has got to be filled. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain will be made low. Crooked roads made straight. In fact, all the rough on, the, on those roads will be made smooth. And it seemed like all of a sudden the light flashed, and I thought, that's the road to Calvary, isn't it? That's the road. And, and you know, you make straight, because there's only one road. And valleys need to be filled. There are so many people in valleys who are, just feel so amok, and they just feel so worthless. And to think that, that the valleys can be filled and raised, you know, and then the mounds can be lowered. I thought, that just doesn't that show all mankind? People who think they're, they're not in need of a savior, they're very self-sufficient. And, and then, like I said, the ones who just feel like they're so worthless. And here is prepare the way for the Lord because the, the straight path, make that path straight, raise up from the valley, lower the mountains, and, and this, this is my favorite, the crooked roads shall become straight. To me, I looked at the crooked roads, 
all the different excuses people give on how to get to heaven. All the ways, I mean, all the ways that people can say, oh, you can get to heaven this way if you just are a good person or this, well, I go to church every Sunday and you know, you know the lingo. And the, there's so many people that think that there's so many different ways. And he said, the crooked road's got to be made straight. And the rough ways smooth. So you, if you were willing to start that humbling walk to the cross, the only way, the only way you can get there is walking on this one path. He reassures us that the road will be smooth for you. You will, you will just, you won't stumble if you keep your eyes straight ahead. I thought, there, that just makes such good sense. And then, and all mankind will see God's salvation. All mankind. It's for everyone, all mankind. So I say he's got their attention now. Then John said, to, now, he, now he says to the crowds, now, you know, I gotta, I gotta give this man credit. He has got nerve. I mean, to me, this sounds like his first sermon and he's got the attention, he's got the crowd there. And what does he address his con congregation with? You brood of vipers. That's how he starts. You family of snakes. You poisonous, venomous people that in your religion, you're sharing poison. It's not the way. And to be honest with you, I thought, you know, John, give them a break. I mean, they have worshipped the same way for hundreds of years. The Old Testament, the Leviticus law, all the rules, the sacrifices, animal sacrifices. They've been doing this, the temple, the, the Holy of Holies and all. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. Give them a little break. This is all new. And no, it wasn't. It isn't new. If, they're so, if they've been reading their scriptures, they have been hearing the prophets, they've been hearing the prophecies, and they should have been, what, waiting and ready and prepared for the coming of the Lord. They should have been, because that's what was promised over and over again. And, you know, I couldn't help but relate that to us today. I mean, I think if I asked all of you, how many of you believe that Jesus is coming again? I know every one of you believe that. But are we really ready? Are we really anticipating? Because he's going to come like a thief in the, light, the night. And so you think, oh, well, see that shows we're going to be surprised. Well, you know what? We shouldn't be. He's going to come when we least expect. I mean, he's going to come like a thief, but... We should be so ready and prepared that when, when he comes, we should be the first to say, well, it's about time. I've been looking forward to this forever. So I'm not going to cut these people any slack here because, and I'm not going to cut us any slack either because we should be, because Jesus will say it over and over that we have to be, preparing, we should be ready, we should be looking toward. 
I mean, just love a Fanny Crosby when, you, when she, she can't see a thing, and yet she writes watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. I mean, she was ready, or she wouldn't have ever been that. So, you know, they should have been not surprised they should have been ready for this. And, and so he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Has anybody told you that if you don't become real, if your heart doesn't change, if, if you do not acknowledge a need of a Savior, do you, you've, you're going to, anybody warned you that you're going to deal with his coming wrath? Now see, John doesn't spare any words. And you got to love it about him. He's direct. And then he says, verse 8, produce fruit with repentance. Here's your key that he is saying. It's more than a feelings. You've got to produce. You've got to act. You've got to, you've got to produce fruit. And we know through the New Testament that fruit is... You know, it's the character of Christ. You've got to start changing. You should be seeing less of you and more of Christ. When you repent and you see yourself and you repent and you put it away and you turn away from that, you should be, you should be, you and I should be producing more of that, that kind of love, you know, the love that doesn't have strings attached to it. You know, the kind of love Jesus had while we were yet sinners. Or how about, you know, we should be producing joy. We should be showing joy even though we are not happy. You know, things are not happy and comfortable, and yet joy. Produce a peace, you know, a peace that... It, it, Man can't explain. It passes all man's understanding. And we can have this peace even though our boat is rocking and we are in a crisis. And yet we know him. And we know he's up to something. And how about producing patience? Patience, instead of jumping ahead and trying to fix it, you trust him enough to wait. Wait on the Lord and find that your strength can be renewed. Produce kindness. And, you know, that one's such a doozy because we think that it's just being nice. And, you know, anybody can be nice. But when the Spirit produces kindness in us, it's selflessness. You are you're putting yourself away. It's selflessness. Produce goodness. Produce goodness. You know, and you can sing God is so good because you know the definition of the word good. And it doesn't mean that it is good because you're getting your way. It's because it's good because it's God's will. And even though it doesn't feel good, your heart and the spirit in your heart tells you it is good because God's at work. It's good faithfulness produce faith because so much has is based on faith 
faith, believing without even seeing. You don't need, you don't need to see. How do you know this Bible's true? By faith, I believe it is. How do you know that, that Jesus did die on that cross? Because I didn't actually see it. I believe it. I believe he came out of that grave. How do I know that the Holy Spirit could change my life? Well, that one's easy. I just look in the mirror. You know, produce faith. Live by faith, not by sight, we're taught. Gentleness, produce a gentleness, and that's not wimpy either. That isn't just talking soft and letting people wallop you all over you. No, in fact, gentleness is a silent strength. You are so confident, not self-confident. You are confident in the title, I'm a child of God. I believe that when I'm learning, I can stand on it. It is my foundation of truth. It's a silent strength. I don't have to fight and debate and quarrel. And No, I just know. It's that silent strength. And, and then produce a self-control. And I always, I always say this because I believe it. You know, you need all eight to be able to get to this one. You need all eight because self-control is produce putting yourself aside. It's not about you anymore. Once you've come to the cross of Christ, it's not about you anymore. It's about him. So, you know, just, just get rid of that self-control. Don't let, and I think every one of us knows when self takes over. Oh, it is so ugly. I can tell right away when I pushed the spirit off the throne and I want to make my own call and I can tell when I stop clinging to the Lord and think I I can handle it so he says produce fruit with this repentance in other words no don't just feel I want you to I want you to work it and do not begin to say to yourself do not be, I think, I think Abraham, I think John knew that their mouths were, were open and the sound was just about ready to come out. Yeah, but cool it. Don't get so hot and heavy. We are children of Abraham. I think he, he knew that's what they were thinking. So he cut them off at the knees. Don't even say it because, you know, they were taught that if they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, they were in. You know, but that kind of sounds familiar, too, because, you know, there's a lot of um, things going on in churches today that, that you know, you get a little too comfortable with a denomination's theology, and you just kind of think you're in. And you got to be careful with that. Or, or, sometimes, or sometimes you think, yeah, well, you know, my grandpa and grandma, they were just pillars. And they passed it to my parents, and, and now here I sit. And I, you know, it's so easy to just kind of think it osmosisly just kind of went into you. But John is saying, no, this doesn't count. This is individual. And then he says, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. That, that's not going to hold any water. And then verse 9, he comes down heavy. 
He said, now this is your opportunity to hear how, how, how God set it up. This is how salvation works. And you can play your religious game, you, but if you are not real, and, and you can fool everybody else, but God sees. Let me give you this word picture, he's saying. If you just want to play religion and that, he says, I just want you to know that there's going to be an axe that's going to be laying on the ground. And then, because God can see your heart, and if it's not the real thing, he's just going to cut that tree down. But John doesn't leave it there. He says, and it'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, we know what that means. See what I mean about he is not, in, in one sermon, he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't smother it with a lot of warm fuzzies. He lays it on the line. He knows who he's talking to. Well, it looks like in verse 10, they were responding. I mean, they were listening. And so, in their hearing this, and so, what should we do then? What's next? What do we do? And verses 11 through 14 uses three examples. But I think bottom line, he is saying, what do you do next? Take a look at your life. Take a look at maybe what no one else knows but you do. Where, where is there a weakness? Where, where are you playing with the world? Where are you trying to slip something by? What are you trying to hide? So he said to the crowd, maybe, maybe you have a problem with this. Uh, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. I mean, there's that. What do you do next? Well, let's take a look. Take a look at your heart and your life. And, you know, do you kind of hoard for yourself? And is it hard for you to give? And then, you know, that's personal, and I don't think I have to go on anymore, but, I guess, but that is a problem for some. Because I think, you know, especially for those who have lived through the Depression, you're thinking, but wonder if I need that. But the Lord will show you. And, and, and then, then um, what about, you know, you see these people standing in corners and, and they're holding up their sign. Well, do I stop at everyone now and, you know, give them 20 bucks or whatever? And I'm saying, no, but the Lord will show you. I mean, if your heart is open and you are willing to, to share, he will show you. And, and now, you know, we're going into this season, we're going to be inundated with envelopes and, and with pleas, you know, for all the missions that are around, and they're all good. So how do you know? You ask him. He can see if you have a willing heart. And he's saying, when he tells you, you do it. You share. And then the tax collector, the tax collector came, also came to be baptized. And he said, teacher, what should we do? Here comes the tax collectors. I mean, they were so hated. They were so deceitful. They were such liars. They were just cold-hearted men. And the tax collectors come up and say, well, what should we do? And 
I think John would have loved to have said, well, just stop it. You know, and I think basically this is what John is saying when you say, well, what should I do next? He said, take a look at your life and whatever is hindering you, stop it. Whatever the Lord is showing you and convicting you of, stop it. Don't collect any more than you're required. Be honest. And so, you know, I think he's using these examples because, you know, and then we can put ourselves in there. What is, you know, what is it that the Lord is trying to show me about me? And then, um, how about the soldiers? The soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. You know, the, these soldiers probably, you know, they, they, they loved the power. You know, I can just see him going up to somebody and, and you know, grabbing them by the neck and, and saying, but if you pay me so much, I could think about letting you go. And... John replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Stop it. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and they were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. I can see that, can you? Can't you see that? You know, here comes this unique fella and, and he's preaching up a storm and he's just, you know, like I said, no nonsense. And he, you know, it's very convicting message and people are moved and, oh, maybe this is the Messiah. And John instantly, verse 16, comes right back and answers them again in a word picture that they can understand. Did you know that there were people that had people, I don't think they would think of them as people, I think they just thought of them as little trash people, you know, but they, they could go to them and say, oh, time is you, time is you. Or at the end of the day, oh, my feet are sore, oh, untie my shoes. There were people that literally did that, tied and untied their shoes. Because they were too good to, be, to do that. And you know, some of those people that were listening, they probably identified with that when John answered, and you know what? I baptize with water. I can only baptize with water. I can only symbolically, I can tell you about the one who can forgive your sins. I can, I can symbolically bring you into the water and you can know that you go in a sinner and come out a sinner, yes, but saved by grace. I can, I can do that. I can only symbolically do the motions. But the one that is more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That's what John thought of Jesus. Can't even compare himself to the person who has the job of tying and untying people's shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And then he goes right away and says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a similar uh, consequence like he did in verse 9 about the axe. Now he's going to give another word picture. And he's, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, already, even from Genesis 3, the Lord's always given us a choice. It's either my way or your way. Up to you. But let me tell you, what, if, it, if, it's, if you come my way, you're going to be like wheat that I will pick up and I will put you in my barns. Or you're going to be like, you're phony. You can, you can play all the games you want, but you, you are phony and I can see that. You're like chaff and you're going you're gonna to be thrown. You're just waste and you're good for nothing and I'm going to throw you in an unquenchable fire. I don't think he could have made it any clearer, do you? I mean, he's just so poignant on making sure of your choice and the conditions and the consequences. Now, this lesson, it's, it's not your, that you leave here, oh, oh, wasn't that wonderful? Um, oh, I feel so good about myself. I mean, this is the kind of lesson that you kind of leave with your tail between your legs because it's so convicting because it is a look at your real self. So it is a tough lesson. The message of John the Baptist is firm. And yet... Look what, look what Luke says in verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people. And, and I looked up, I, I wasn't quite sure what exhorted mean, I, I meant. I wanted to see the dictionary's definition, and it, I couldn't help but smile because it was strongly urged. That's what exhort means. You know, John knows he can't make people buy this, believe this, you know. So he is strongly urging, or it says strongly encouraging. And Luke wrote that because he understood that. If Mary is telling him this, you know, he understood that because he had to make a choice. And his choice was yes. And he watched, he watched his life change so much that remember when we introduced Luke said, you know, in the first few verses of chapter one, you know, he can't wait to bring this news to Theophilus. And he says to Theophilus, I have investigated, I have thoroughly um, gone to people who are eyewitnesses and I am sure, Theophilus, that this is true. 
And I think that's another reason why he makes sure we know who's the governing of the world at that time, just to make sure that we can see and he uses real people, that this isn't once upon a time, there was this fable that just makes you feel so wonderful about yourself. Luke says, I am so sure about this gospel story because I know what it did for me. I think that's why Luke writes these words that, yes, John, you know, John's experienced it too. So he is strongly suggesting, he is strongly urging, he's strongly encouraging. But then look at, even though it's a tough-minded message to hear, look at Luke says, and preach the good news to them. Even though it's smack in your face. I mean, you just feel like you're being walloped here. I mean, it's really exposing, and yet Luke calls it good news. The gospel is good news because you now have a way out if you want. That's the best news. Before there wasn't any, before, before Jesus was willing to come to this earth, I mean, man dug his grave already, his eternal death grave. But because of the love of the Father, Jesus was willing to be obedient even to the cross. And now, under the power of God's Spirit, we can understand this and see ourselves. It's good news. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, you know, between verses 18 and 19, I mean, Luke just kind of whips to another, another subject, and he, it just shows, too, about the personality of John the Baptist, his, his strong belief, his, his, um, the word of God is true, it stands firm in the heavens, it doesn't change, and he has the nerve to go to Herod, the tetrarch, and say to him, because no one else would dare do this, but it just shows, you know, what God said it, and that I should believe that, and that should just settle the subject. What's all the debate about? The word of God is black and white, and this is the way it should be, you know? And so he's not judging anybody. He's going to Herod saying, I'm not judging you, Herod. It's very obvious that you took Philip's wife and married her. This isn't a judgment call. I see it. Everybody sees it. So here, I don't want you to know that's wrong. And you know, we, you've seen it in other Gospels. You know the story. You know Herodias. Herodias was Philip's wife, and Herod must have wanted her. And, and, and she probably thought maybe she liked Herod better than Philip. I have no idea, but it was wrong. And, and so John the Baptist confronts him, and... And so they lock him in jail. They lock him in jail because, because they don't want to be told. They don't want to be told that they don't want to feel the guilt. I mean, they know what's wrong. And then I thought, I started thinking about that word guilt. You know, it truly is a gift, even though it feels horrible. It's truly a gift because guilt can go one of two ways. And again, you can do it God's way or you can do it your way. But if you do it God's way, guilt is, it's, it's when we make a mistake 
and we feel guilty about it. It's the Lord saying, now do you want to live like this? Do you want to carry this? Because guilt weighs a ton. So do you want do you want to let it go? Do you want it to be set free of it? Just come to me. Fess up and admit it and come to me. And I'm I'm the only one that can take your sin away and and your guilt will be gone. But another thing you can do with guilt is exactly what Herod did. Let's just try to get rid of the one who's making me feel guilty. And if I, if I don't have to see him or hear him, then I won't feel guilty. Well, you know what? He found out that guilt doesn't work that way. So, and another thing, did you notice what Luke writes? He, he didn't just tell him about Herodias. He, he said, and all the other evil things he had done. So I think John the Baptist had a little list. And said, by the way, this is not just my call. This is what you're doing, and it's obvious, and, and I am confronting you on that. Well, you know, he's going to have this party here, it is, you know, and so he knows that Herodias has got a gorgeous daughter, and so, you know, he puts, he, you know, he probably bought her some beautiful clothes, and, and she danced very seductively, and, you know, they were all drunk as can be, and, and then they're watching her dance, and Herod is just beside himself. So he says to her, oh, you were wonderful, Salome. You can have up to half my kingdom. And, and Salome thinks, oh, wow, I don't want to mess this up, so I'm going to ask some advice from my mom. So she goes to Herodias, what should I ask for? He's giving me up to have the kingdom. And Herodias says, oh, here is my chance. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. If we kill him, if he's out of the picture and he can't make any more lists, then, then our guilt will be gone. doesn't work that way. And so when it comes to this, I think it just is an eye-opener. The Lord is so gracious and merciful that when we make a mistake, he clobbers us with guilt and says, okay, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your sin? When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. You know, we know what baptism is a symbol of, and he's not a sinner. He never committed one sin. What in the world is he being baptized for? And it's here that I just shout hallelujah because he was so willing to, to identify himself with all mankind in every way. And the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, he wasn't a sinner. And yeah, when he was on the cross, he took all the sins of mankind upon himself. And what's so wonderful for you and I is that we've got a Savior that we can go to, and, and he will never answer us back this way. I can't relate to that. I don't quite understand. We've got a Savior who understands, the writer of Hebrews says. He knows. He understands. He's been through it. Luke is the only gospel that says, and he was praying. When this, when this next thing happened, he was praying. For some reason, whoever was telling Luke the story, they said, oh, and we saw Luke was, or 
um, Jesus was standing there and he was praying and then the heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So it was very evident. And we know today that the dove is, is a symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so here we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all working together for what? One mission for you and me. It's so wonderful. And a voice came, a voice came from heaven, you are my son. You are my son, and I love you. Are there any, are there any words better than that? I mean, he, he claims, when someone claims you, you are my son. I am claiming you. I am, I am not ashamed that you're my son. No, I, I love it that you're my son, and I love you. And then for him to say, and I am so pleased with you. Talk about momentum for Jesus. When you have been told that you are included, that you are loved, and, and the person believes in what you're doing, I'm telling you, you want to do better. You just, you just let me at them. You can't wait. You're so ready to go. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old, and when he began his ministry... Yeah, when he began his ministry, he was 30. And then Luke Red says he was the son. And then this little, between two commas, this is very important. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So um, there are two genealogies in the New Testament. You know, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Uh, Matthew when Matthew wrote his gospel, he was kind of like the, the buffer between the Old and New Testament. So he, he was primarily talking to the Jews. And so he took Joseph's line, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. <laughs> he, he took Joseph's line, and he took it all the way, sure, through David's line. I mean, just the way that it was prophesied. And then he, he stopped at Abraham because... The Jews believed that God's starting the whole process of the Israelite nation, the people of God, and bringing Jesus through that nation started in Genesis 12 with Abraham, with a covenant promise. And now, in, in Luke's gospel, he, and this is why I think he's talking to Mary, and genealogy is so incredibly important. They, you know, there's no way I'm going to read that. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important, but, but genealogy was very important. It, it proved, it proved the family, it proved that this really happened, that they were real people. And, but this is, this is Mary's line. This is the line of Mary. And, and usually genealogies do not go through a woman's line, but through, a, through the father's line. But that's why Luke wrote, he was the son, so it was thought. You know, 
Mary and Joseph, they had a lot of explaining to do, remember? They, I don't think that that ever left, that that concept, I mean, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Mary probably said, well, yeah, and the Holy Spirit came upon me and the Most High shadowed over me. You know? I mean, can you imagine people? Yeah, right. So there were many who were skeptical, thinking, yeah, come on, you just don't want to admit you're playing around a little bit and got caught. I mean, this stuff is still going on, you know. So they were still in their mind thinking, Joseph was the father. But Mary knows different. She knows different. And she writes this line. Luke writes her line. And, you know, where it really matters, like at David and all the prophecies and all, that's why Matthew's genealogy is right. Luke's genealogy is right. But Look, did you notice at the end, instead of taking it just to Abraham, did you see Luke being a Gentile? I can just hear him saying to Mary, take it to the end. I want to know that I'm, a, I'm one of the sons of God. Take it all the way to the beginning, Adam, the son of God. I am now a part of this. I, too, am a son of God. I'm a child of God. It's a pretty powerful lesson, if you ask me, and I think it's far more relatable than what, you know, we know this story so well, but I think it can be related so, so good to our day and age, and each one of us personally, and I can't wait to start the ministry of Jesus next week. But we needed these preliminaries first, for sure. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we had tonight. Lord, I just again can't thank you enough for your graciousness, for your unconditional love, for your making a way possible. And yet now you expect, you expect us to produce fruit. You expect us to change. We are no longer the same. Old is gone, new has come. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that lives, it's Christ that lives in me. If that really is true, then we should be seeing changes. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. We don't want to be playing religious games. Try me and know my thoughts. I love that song, and it just reminds, take my will, my passion, and my pride I now surrender, Lord. Father, it is far more serious than I think sometimes we have been led to believe. Lord, may we really take this lesson tonight and, and make it ours. And may, maybe like John said, take a look at your heart. See what needs to be worked on. Everybody has something. And Lord, we always remember you see. And our goal should be wanting to please you. We want to hear that. We want to be able to hear exactly what Jesus did, that we, are, we belong to you. You love us, and you are pleased with us. Lord, I just pray tonight that, that these words just really take a hold of our soul, and we will truly give you all the glory and praise in Jesus' name.
Amen.